Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. I know we're in a wee bit of a different scenario, but the, uh, the election threw us for a loop this week and we've been very busy. We did the five and a half hour live stream uh, for election night and then the next day in the morning we did our shows and laid everything out. And so now we're in... Uh, we're coming to you from my parents' correct. office. That's yes. where we are. That's exactly where we are. So. <laughs> Thank you, mom and dad, for letting us use this space. Thanks, mom. <laughs> Mom can pick me up. <laughs> I'm just hoping she like will make us a sandwich afterwards. Yes. She does make the best sandwiches. Yes, she probably will do that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so got an awesome show for you guys today. We're going to be talking to Marianne Williamson. Uh, really interesting to hear from her for the simple reason that she is kind of like the the conscience of the left in a sense that, you know. I think that's well said. Even somebody like me who's now accused of being a Biden bro, not illegitimately, um, you know, you want a real moral guiding core. Like, here's where we really should go, not just the, hey, Jack, I tripped over my dick and did some decent things. Yeah. Type stuff, you know what I'm saying? Definitely. So, so anyway, I'll be interested to hear her critiques of the Democrats, um, her her praise of why the election ended up the way it ended, and her thoughts on Republicans as well. So it should be fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think that's all really set, well said. I mean, Marianne is always sort of encouraging everyone to think on a higher level and aspire to more, aspire to what we actually could achieve and what people deserve. So yeah, great to hear from her. Um, all right. So before we get into that, though, uh, let's take a minute to talk about all these direct ballot initiatives that happened on election night, because this look, I think this is massively underreported. You guys know I'm a big fan of direct ballot initiatives. It, basically, what that is, is direct democracy at the state level where people vote on very specific issues. And as I tell you, about 80 percent of the time, people will vote for the position that I think is the most reasonable. Yeah. So it gives me a lot of faith in individuals a lot of good ones here. on specific issues. People who you might think are too far gone in the culture war, partisan hacks when it comes to specific politicians, all of a sudden that goes away when you talk about specific issues and they're like, yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah. So it's a positive thing. So go ahead. I know you got a list. Okay. I got a whole bunch of these from CNN and a bunch of these aren't decided yet, um, including this first one. This one is interesting. So in Arizona, they voted on enacting stricter voter ID requirements, like making it harder to vote, basically. It was close. 50. And right 7. now that's losing. Um, it ha isn't decided yet, but that is losing right now. 50.7 so, to 49.3. And just to make a comment on that real quick. So here's the issue on this one. Yeah. Intuitively, people like the way it sounds. Right. Like, hey, you need an ID to fucking drive. Why shouldn't you need an ID to right. vote? Right, exactly. Which is why I'm actually surprised that Me too. they have a shot at prevailing here. Me too. So we'll see where the so, results end up. But I'm actually surprised it's even close. Me too. Because again, the intuitive feeling, any normie is like, yeah, why wouldn't you need an ID to vote? But what people don't realize is it literally is a ploy just to suppress the vote. Yes. To make it so poor people. So apparently usually, people do realize that. Some half of voters in some Arizona do. Some, <laughs> realize Some do it realize anyway. it. But yeah, the idea behind it, as I'm sure you guys know, is... It, it, it takes time. It takes money to take time out of your day to go get an ID. Sometimes they want a specific kind of ID, which is even more difficult. And that suppresses usually uh, the votes of low-income people. So anyway, all right, continue. Okay, so we had a mixed bag on marijuana legalization. Um, they voted on it in Arkansas, and it failed. They voted on legalizing recreational marijuana in Maryland, which we drive through all the time, and it passed. Quite handily. 65.5%. Yeah. So that's nice. That is great. Um, they voted on it in Missouri, legalizing recreational marijuana. And the show me state went with yes on that one. So marijuana 
wins the ballot initiative in uh, Missouri. And then the other two were, I believe, North Dakota and South Dakota. Lost where in North it Dakota. Lost, yeah. It lost in both of those. But there's only eight people who live there, though. So the vote was five to four. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, if they want, if that's how they want to live, I guess. I'm. Oh, wait, five that. to four is nine. There were nine people. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, it lost in South Dakota and in North Dakota. Okay. Um, there were five uh, abortion measures on the ballot in states as varied as California and Kentucky. And I think there was one on in Montana. There was definitely one in Michigan. And then there was one somewhere else that I'm forgetting about. And in every single instance, the pro-choice position won. So in California, they actually have now enshrined into their state constitution a constitutional right to abortion. I think that was the one that went the furthest. And again, it's not close. Right now, there's still a lot of the vote. There's still half the vote out in California. They need to get their act together. But anyway, where it stands right now is 65% yes and 35% no. Healthcare. Give them the healthcare one. I love this. All right. Because I made a prediction. At least as of right now, my prediction looks pretty solid. Here we go. Okay. Oregon measure 111. Establish a right to health care. Let me let me read you. This measure would amend the state constitution to ensure affordable health care access balanced against a requirement to fund schools and other essential services. So a yes vote supports the state ensuring affordable health care access. A no vote opposes the state ensuring affordable health care access. And again, this would be a right in the state constitution to health care. It is narrowly up right now. 80% of the vote in. 50.3% 50.3% say yes, 49.7% say no, and the margin is about 8,000 votes between separating those two right now. And let me just point out, the way they worded that is weaselly as hell, and even with it being weaselly, you're slightly edging it out in, for the yes column, so there, I think that's positive. And by the way, I predicted when it was down, it was like, whatever, 51.49 for the no position with like 61% of the vote counted. And I was like, I bet that one's going to go the other way. So anyway, I'm right, at least as of right now. That you, could go wrong though. You had a couple of California ballot initiatives to legalize sports betting on tribal lands and to legalize online sports betting. And those are overwhelmingly, um, yeah, those are overwhelmingly actually failing. My, so. my guess is the specifics of those are yikesy. Like, you know, usually when they do this, they have like a monopoly in mind and only specific people can benefit from it. Maybe, but so, you should anyway. be able to gamble online. It's total bullshit. Um, Connecticut yeah, wants no monopoly. Connecticut wants to allow early voting. That passed pretty easily in Iowa. This one's not good. They established a state constitutional right to bear arms. <laughs> you have a federal constitutional right to bear arms. Why would I you add it to the state? Just want to double check. <laughs> just want to make sure. Um, this is the Kentucky abortion amendment. Here we go. Marijuana in Maryland. Michigan abortion. Okay, I have um, one. While you're looking for more. No, I got. It. I got okay, another one here. Right. In Michigan, they uh, also voted to expand voting access and policies. So what's interesting... Fucking commies. And I'm just noticing this uh, trend right now, but at the same time that there was a mass uh, rejection of election-denying like anti-democracy candidates, there was actually a really strong performance for pro-democracy ballot initiatives. So you have the voter ID thing in Arizona, maybe failing. You have expanding uh, voting access and policies in Michigan. There was another state, I think it was like Connecticut, that also was expanding early voting and access. So those are positive things. Let me give everybody my favorite one. Okay. I can't I can't hold this back anymore. Massachusetts did uh, they did a direct vote on a tax on the ultra rich. Okay. So this is the way it would work. A four percent tax on incomes over one million dollars a year to fund education and transportation. Amazing. Okay. 
So again, the way a marginal tax rate works is sort of everything over that million line is taxed at four percent. Okay. Okay. Fifty-two millionaires tax. Fifty-two forty-eight. It passes. Nice. I love it. I fucking love it. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, Um, uh, any others? I'm thinking off the top of my head. There was a minimum wage one. So Nevada. Voted to up their minimum wage to $15 an hour. I mean, base. Nebraska. Sorry, Nebraska. Even more based. It's Nebraska. Base. 60, 40, not really close at all. Um, Nevada upped it to $12 an hour. Um, that one's not officially called yet, but the margin looks good. They're going to Yeah, it's, that's it's solid. It was, it was like nine fifty, right? And they just made it 12 I think. Is that what happened? Uh, I think yeah. It was, I, I don't think know if it says it there, but I think the I read that elsewhere. D.C. actually passed a ballot initiative that would get rid of the tipped minimum wage. I'm just calling for that forever. Totally in favor of that. Apparently, I think what I had read about that is voters had actually passed that ballot initiative before, and then the city council overturned it. Why can they? They shouldn't be able to do that. (laughs) This is what the voters voted for. But anyway, so I don't know if they might do that. Ultimately, again. Um, so I think those were some of the big ones. Oh, oh I know a another one. one. Okay. I know another one that I was excited about, which is that, uh, in Chicago, I mean, in Illinois, they amended their state constitution to guarantee a right to collective bargaining and basically ban, uh, the ability to make the state a quote unquote right to work state, which yes. is of course anti-union legislation. Yes. That was one that I was super, super, super psyched about. And there was a state, I don't remember what state it was, but it was about psychedelics, like legalizing certain psychedelics. Stop right there for the fire on one in a yeah, second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But legalizing certain psychedelics and that- I think that was Colorado. And that was ahead. They were ahead for yes on psychedelics. Yes. So you got pro-minimum wage stuff, pro-union stuff, pro-taxing the rich stuff, pro-psychedelic stuff. Pro-democracy. Like I said, like 80% of the time, the right position wins. And then, so give the, I think so the gun one's the last one. This here. is close on this one. In Oregon, with 82% of the vote in, you've got a measure to require a permit to buy firearms and to ban- high capacity magazine. So this like gun safety um, legislation and uh, it's narrowly up 50.8 to 49.2. So that could go the other way. We don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, So it's up by about like 25,000. Does it say what percentage is in? It doesn't say that. 82%. Oh, 82%. Yeah. That could flip the other way. way. But Depending look, on what's allowed. If you had asked me beforehand, would Oregon vote for permit to buy firearms and ban on high capacity magazines? The high capacity magazines, I would have said, yes, the, Permit to buy firearms? I don't think that I wouldn't have thought that would pass. Yeah, I mean, but, Oregon's, Oregon's kind of rural. One. It's kind of rural, right? It's a blue right. state, but it does have a large, very rural, rural yeah. population. So, so mixed, mixed bag there. Man, I thought. Imagine Crystal. If every time we voted for president, you got to vote on like five issues directly. Do you realize how far advanced this country would be? I actually almost forgot one of the best ones. What's up? Nevada might be voting to institute uh, ranked choice voting in open primaries which would be fantastic. And that would help, you know, for people who are like third party supporters and excited, like that would make it possible that you could actually vote for the candidate in the party that you really believed in right. and not just have to do the lesser evil and not worry about the spoiler effect. So it could create a lot more options in our democracy. Think of the downsides with direct democracy and compare it to the downsides of our shitty system now. Like the downsides of direct democracy are so much less. And by the way, you can protect against virtually all the downsides with a constitutional direct democracy. So you take everybody's rights, you put the rights off the table and everything else you can vote on. I'm such a stand for that. I get so triggered when anybody disagrees with me on this because it's like, look at the results. Look at the results. The results are phenomenal. I mean, um, this is Mike Gravel. Like that's That's what he He wanted another branch of government. Really believed in this where you vote on, yeah. had some of the most innovative ideas about how you could invest more power in the people. And I mean, to me, that is the ultimate definition of populism. It's not all this like fake 
culture war yeah. posturing nonsense that people take it as, but it really comes down to like an actual faith in democracy an actual <sighs> belief in your fellow citizens to be able to sort through complicated issues and like govern themselves. And, you know, that's largely absent oftentimes from our country. And what I love about this is just how practical and pragmatic it is. It's not hard to conceptualize. It's not hard to grasp. It's not hard to implement. It's not like some pie in the sky, like Viva la Revolution bullshit. This is super practical and pragmatic. It's like, hey, you just go and vote directly on the issue. And whatever happens, that's what we implement. Hooray. Yeah, like, right. I'm not saying that, you know, <laughs> the bureaucracies aren't going to be hard to work with, like to try to create the healthcare situation in Oregon or wherever sure. it was. Like, yeah, that's going to be work. And that's why you have bureaucrats to do certain things. Right. But in terms of like how to get the right answers and go down the right path, like this is the easiest way to do it. It's such a constitutional direct democracy, baby. That's my shit. Listen, that's my it, joint. it has you know, it's not perfect. You're not always going to get the answers that you want, but it has a lot more to recommend it than the current way that we're doing things. Most of the time, it's going to go the right way. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So we'll go ahead and introduce Marianne. All right. Uh, Marianne Williamson, you know her, you love her. Um, she actually has a wonderful Substack stack um, that you all should ch check out where she's always sharing a lot of thoughts, sort of like political thoughts and also higher level thoughts. So I great was really- Great article on the election. Great article wrote. on the election great that article. you guys should check out. Yeah. Um, she obviously is a former presidential candidate. She's a best-selling author and a wonderful friend to both of us. So let's get to it. Marianne, always a pleasure to see you. Oh, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you for having me, guys. Of course. So we both read your uh, sort of big picture election takeaways from the Democrats' unexpectedly not terrible and actually rather good performance on Tuesday night. So um, just share with the, the audience, like, why do you think that they did better than any party in power in modern history, save for 2002 when you had a big rally around the flag effect after 9-11? Well, obviously the country isn't a monolith and you can't look into the mind and heart of every voter. Uh, we've known that the country was split, but the split in this case led to this kind of golden mean in the center. I mean, it's so fascinating because it wasn't a huge repudiation of either side. That's why some of these races are so close. Um, it is actually historically um, uh, true that when it comes down to the bottom line, Americans do cleave to a kind of center. This is, this is historically true of us. So I think that they just went too far. I think uh, the MAGA crowd went too far. I think, as it turns out, Biden was wiser than I had assumed he was by emphasizing to his own base over the last few weeks um, the danger that is represented by the ultra-right, um, plus the issues, the progressive points um, and uh, progressive policies that he did move towards, whether it has to do with some cancellation of the college loan debt uh, and so forth. So I see this as a kind of reprieve. I don't take it as meaning that the American people have all of a sudden fallen in love with the Democratic Party. I think the American people realize that the <clears throat> corporatist nonsense that comes from the, from, from the Republican Party is not completely absent from the Democratic Party, but at the very least, they chose the lesser of two evils. So how do you weigh the different factors for the Democrats? So like one of the things I said after seeing the results is that here's, here's what I attribute it to. Number one, you have Republican extremism. So you have the people who deny the last election or kind of open about maybe we'll overthrow them in the future. 
you have GOP authoritarianism, which under that I put, you know, Roe versus Wade being overturned, the fact that 157 Republicans in the House voted against gay marriage, 195 voted against a right to contraception. So you have this rise of Republican extremism, rise of Republican authoritarianism. But then, you know, the other factors, I would argue, are the student loan debt cancellation, bringing out young people, um, and then even the onshoring of 350,000 jobs because Democrats overperformed throughout the industrial Midwest. So what's your sense of like, um, which is the biggest factor and why? I think all of the above. I mean, like I said, we can't really look inside people's hearts. I think all of the above. I think the the um, most important thing for us to concentrate on as people who care about what happens in the Democratic Party is that we continue to remind the Biden administration and anyone else who needs to hear it, that it was the uh, the moves in progressive directions that attracted people, that attracted young people. And the point now is just to put the feet on the accelerator. I heard you say earlier that we need to do more than just make these incremental changes, be a little bit more progressive. We want to do more than cancel some of the college loan debt. The ultimate goal is to cancel all of the college loan debt. If if moving a little bit in progressive directions got us what we got the other night. Think what will happen if we go all the way in the direction of progressive policies that we actually know the American people will support. You know, even Fox News said that 65% of its viewers believe that the, um, the U.S. government should take responsibility for the health care of its citizens. This is the direction that the country is moving. And the Democratic Party needs to stop uh, suppressing its its progressive base. It needs to stop almost invisibilizing its progressive base. It needs to align with its progressive base, which is the traditional FDR New Deal um, alignment of the Democratic Party. And then, then we can actually repair this country. Yeah, I heard a lot in advance of this election after the primaries, like when Summer Lee um, in a Pittsburgh area district, narrowly won her primary. There was a lot of hand wringing. Oh my God, now maybe the Republicans are going to win. And APAC poured millions of dollars actually into defeating her both in the primary and then also in the general election. She won handily, <laughs> no problem whatsoever. So none of that fear mongering about like, oh my God, we can't nominate lefties pan down. And in fact, John Fetterman was arguably in the Senate the best Democratic candidate in the entire country. And he was also the most progressive and the furthest left, especially on economics. Not only that, look at Val Demings in Florida. $70 million went into Val Demings' race against Marco Rubio. And she basically made her whole campaign about being tough on crime, law and order. I mean, it was like, you know, Republican light from the 1990s, and she lost by 16 points. So not only is it that the progressive candidates like Summerlee are able to break through, but it's also true. Look at Sean Patrick Maloney. He lost. The more corporatist Democrats are losing. So we have to shout this loud and clear. Um, um, I think that those of us, yourselves included, myself and many others who've been kind of voices in the wilderness, need to claim the fact that this is not the wilderness. The American people are hearing this, even if the corporatist uh, leadership within the Democratic Party isn't hearing it. So I think we need to shout loud and proud right now because we're right. I mean, it's such a great point. I'm going to have to tweet out something like this, but in very similar districts, Katie Porter won easily, and Sean Patrick Maloney loses. 
So tell me again about like who's electable and what your theory of is of how you win ultimately in general elections and win voters. Yeah. This idea um, of, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Marianne. I'm sorry. Well, no, just, I was going to say that this whole idea of tacking to the right, starting with the democratic leadership council and, um, uh, Bill Clinton, the idea that we will beat them by being more like them has proved a spectacular moral failure for the Democratic Party. Uh, it has decimated our principles uh, and has not helped us with the American people. I think in many ways it paved the way for, for Donald Trump. So here's my... I mean, recently I've been accused of being a Biden bro. I've been, I remember when we were doing the live coverage, uh, Crystal. Chill. You accused yourself of being I mean, a Biden bro. So wait a second. I, I made the <laughs> argument as to like, well, maybe here's why they did well. And I listed like a whole bunch of Biden's policy accomplishments. And then somebody on the panel goes, that was the most eloquent case I've ever heard for Biden. You should work for him. That's what, that's what they said to <laughs> that's me. That's what Sagar but, said. <laughs> but so now, but let me put, let me, let me make the counter argument now though, because this also weighs on my mind all the time, which is, so- even though all the credit I've given them for the things that they've done, I think he's the best president of my lifetime by far, actually. Here's the issue, though. I don't see in Biden or any of these other, this crop of Democrats that still makes up the majority of the elected officials, I don't see a striving for an ideal. I don't see, here's the vision and here's what we're aiming towards. So what I still see among Biden is what I call a status quo manager who does tweaks around the edges and the tweaks around the edges genuinely improves people's lives. And I don't want to downplay that, but you need, you know, a moral core. You need to have, this is the goal. This is where we're aiming, sort of like FDR had, sort of like Bernie represented in 2016 and 2020. This idea of like, no, no, don't do tweaks around the edges. Don't just, you know, eliminate some student loan debt. Eliminate all student loan debt. Don't just say, hey, we gave X amount billion more to Obamacare to give 3 million more people healthcare. There's like, what, 20 to 40 million people without healthcare in this country? Let's do universal healthcare. Let's do it everywhere. Um, and, you know, we can go on and on here. Uh, the paid family leave is another one. Like, there are things that should represent, we're trying to get to a panacea of social democracy, and we're going five miles an hour in that direction. So my question for you is, do you share the same critique of Biden uh, that I have? And if not, what critique do you have? Well, of course, the Democrats try to have it both ways. They do try to ameliorate the suffering on the edges, but they refuse to challenge the underlying corporate forces that make the return of that suffering inevitable. And that's because they're trying to please their donors, too. So we need to take the same view that FDR took, which is that the alleviation of stress is not enough. We need genuine fundamental economic reform. Genuine fundamental economic reform, however, is institutionally resisted by the leadership of the Democratic Party because it is institutionally um, forbidden by their corporate donors. So that's why that crop needs to get a really move aside now. And though, and we need a return. You know, they, they, they look at progressives like us as trying to hijack the party. We've discussed this before. They hijack the party. <clears throat> They're the DuPonts and the Morgans. A real return to the FDR principles of fundamental, uh, um, uh, fundamental, um, economic reform. Now, like FDR, who said, it has become clear to me, he said, that we must become fairly radical for a generation. Now, the corporatists in both parties go, ooh, radical. They would see FDR as a wild-eyed radical. What's radical is the massive transfer of wealth and opportunity that has happened over the last 40 years, placing um, so much of that wealth into the hands of a 
very tiny group of Americans to the point where even 60% of Americans today live paycheck to paycheck. We're the only country, uh, advanced, advanced nation, not just advanced uh, democracy, that doesn't have universal health care, access to uh, free college, uh, et cetera. So what's radical is the suffering of so many Americans and the constant economic anxiety and social displacement of millions and millions and millions of Americans who live in the richest country in the world. We need to answer the radicalism of that corporate tyranny with the radicalism of the real principles that are American, that are democratic, and that are returned to the idea that the purpose of government is to serve its people. You know, I was looking at some numbers this morning of, uh, you know, some of the exit polls and who voted what way. And to me, one of the starkest divides in this generation, in this um, election was the generational divide. So actually, the only group of voters that shifted towards Democrats vis-a-vis, you know, this election versus the last election was young voters. They're the only ones that swung harder to Democrats. They came out in strong numbers. And, you know, I think abortion was really central to that. I think the extremism of uh, the right and some of these just completely psycho candidates is part of that. But you cannot deny that student loan debt relief was absolutely crucial to the Democratic Party's victory here. And I cannot tell you how many corporate centrist pundits and Democrats um, came out against that and they thought it was the worst thing that Biden could do and it's going to be a disaster with the working class, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, that ended up saving their asses in the end. I don't think there's been a generation of Americans which has done more to thwart proactively thwart the dreams of its young the way we do in this chapter of our history. Um, it's almost like a collective youth abuse. You know, I've uh, spoken at a lot, lot of colleges and universities in the last few months. We've discussed this. And I always say to people, you're not even 20th century creatures, and you don't deserve to live your lives at the effect of bad ideas left over from the 20th century. And I always get wild applause when I say that, because that's what neoliberalism is. It was a bad idea. It represents an aberrational chapter uh, of the United States, this idea that if you take all the resources of government and put Put them in the hands of the CEO and stockholders that somehow all the good that accrues from that will, you know, trickle down to help everyone else. Clearly, it was a spectacular failure, although not a failure for them. It didn't lift all boats. It left millions and millions of people without even a life vest. These young people know that. I speak at even, I remember saying at Stanford, Stanford is elite as it is. I pointed to those kids and I said, you know what? You're even at Stanford. And even with what a Stanford degree will get you, you won't be economically as well off as your parents. And they know this. When, when you say something about, well, these are these young kids tweeting from their, from their parents' basement. They don't want to be in their parents' basement. So they want to resist this. And they're smart enough, these young people, to know that anti-electoralism is not the way. That's just giving even more power to the forces that would that would oppress them and suppress them. So first of all, I think that every generation of, of youth tends to move in, in, a, in a more progressive direction. But this one is literally fighting for its survival. Uh, and wh- whether it has to do with climate change, whether it has to do with economics. And let's not forget that abortion is also an economic issue. Um, it has to do anything that has to do with the choices that a woman can make in her life uh, affects her economic choices as well. So here's why I'm feeling hopeful, because Americans got so used to getting less than nothing. Like they got so used to getting their eyes spit in on a regular basis 
Uh, and then along comes the Biden administration. And, you know, I was calling him bare minimum Biden for a while because he was doing the bare minimum. But Americans were so used to not getting anything and going in the wrong direction that now you could see, I think the Democrats were rewarded by for taking a, a tiny step in the right direction. And the reason why that gives me hope is that political theory I've had for a long time is that um, under FDR, he, he got elected four times. He, he was president four times. He also had 80% of the House and 80% of the Senate at one point when he was president. And so my theory of politics is, look, it's not rocket science. This whole idea of like, there's always a pendulum. It goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Not necessarily. I mean, in modern American history, that's been the case. But when you go back to FDR, like I just described, that wasn't the case. So um, do you feel, Marianne, like I feel that if we actually got a president who far surpasses what Biden is doing, somebody who actually embraces a, a real vision and fights for it, if uh, an American president gets even one big ticket, one big universal uh, program implemented to help the American people, that indeed maybe we will see the same thing we saw back in the FDR days. I mean, you can't be president four times now because of you know term limits, but you can get 80% of the House, you can get 80% of the Senate. Do you feel that same kind of optimism? Because now if we talk about the right vision and some of it is implemented, you see voters will reward that. Absolutely. We have to have the same kind of entrepreneurial audacity that the right has. Whenever anybody says something like, oh, what Kyle just said could never get elected, I always remind them, excuse me, Trump was elected. American right. people have been trained over the last few decades to expect too little, as you said. And this tremendous propaganda machine was was foisted on the American people, suggesting and implanting almost like a chip in their head that any time the resources of government are used to help you, that's socialism. That's the nanny state. And telling men the psychology of that is particularly crucial in terms of men because it's an emasculating thing. Ooh, that's a nanny state. That means you're not really a man. So people are starting to see through that propaganda. What's wrong? What's wrong with the my tax money? It's my tax money. What's wrong with my tax money being used to help me and my children and my community rather than only helping these rich donors and the richest among us and the richest corporations? So absolutely. And that's, that's why this is the moment for us to, sh to shout that from the rooftop. Those who say, oh, that could never get elected for all the reasons that you guys have pointed out here today. Oh, really? Fetterman got elected. Summer Lee got elected. <clears throat> no matter what. And this is not to minimize uh, the forces that will work against this. Uh, and as long as we don't have money uh, out of politics, they'll be coming back. Those forces are regrouping as we speak, but we need to regroup too. And I think uh, this is another thing. The, the Democrats, people on the left have this way of, if you come at us, we go, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll figure out another way to say it. No, the, the Republicans don't make that mistake. You don't like what they said? Let me say it again, and let me say it a little bit louder. We need to really stand by the principles we believe in. Do I believe that a president could get elected who said these things? First of all, let's remember, Al Gore did want, win the presidency in 2000. You know, he, he did. And if Barack Obama had been the president that he indicated he was going to be when he was running in 2008, we would have had a very progressive presidency. So absolutely, I do. I think it's more than, uh, than possible. I think it's necessary.
in terms of you a know, campaign? I, um, I thought this midterms was going to be ugly for Democrats. I thought that they would lose this. And I thought because of the just like manifestly terrible candidates that Republicans put up in the Senate that they wouldn't win by a large margin, but I thought they'd gain, you know, enough to pull off a seat or two victory. And I should say, you know, races haven't been called. That's still theoretically possible, but does not look likely at this point. I thought there would be a lot more losses in the House for Democrats. And so I've been trying to think of what was my miscalculation? What did I get wrong? And I think it's a few things. First of all, I think I didn't appreciate how much people would um, how much people would appreciate just the little like tiny sip of water they were given mm-hmm. by the Biden administration in the desert after years of like Kyle said them getting like, you know, kicked in the face. They're like, oh, you're not going to kick me in the face and you're going to give me like a, a thimble of water as well. That sounds pretty good. Like, thank you for that. I appreciate that. So there was that piece. And then I also think I underestimated um, the level of revulsion they would have at not just the particular, like the worst, fringiest candidates in the Republican Party, but how much that stench would weigh on the party really as a whole across the country. And I know you were also very concerned about how the midterms were going to go for the Democratic Party. What do you think are some of the things that you misread going into election night? I was afraid. Uh, I, I was afraid of political violence. I had seen articles about Oath Keeper and Proud Boys and people with AK-47s who wanted to be around drop boxes. Uh, perhaps I took that in too much. I had read about federal monitors who were being told by states like Florida and Missouri to stay away. So that's what I was afraid of. I was afraid of almost a January 6th type of, of thing. And, um, I think millions prayed that that would not happen. Um, but I also think that Americans do not just speak to their self-interest. I think we're playing small to think that Americans only care about themselves. The political system only speaks to their self-interest. But I, I think that there is something inside the American uh, that instinctively knows this country is important. Uh, we've gotten it wrong. God knows as much as we've gotten it right. But with the, the kind of power that we represent in the world, I think there is a deep level on which Americans want to, as citizens, take responsibility for what this country stands for. Um, I, I, when I was running for president, I've said it many times, I saw how, how corrupt the system is, but I was consistently impressed by people, by voters. Um, and the more I travel, uh, the more I feel this way. Uh, we are decent people. You wouldn't know it sometimes because our shadow face, God knows, is on major display right now. But I think our core is as decent and dignified as anybody else. And I think that that's what we demonstrated this last week. And it wasn't just because, oh, I got mine. It, it was something, I think, bigger than that, um, something more decent than that. And I think we need to speak to that. Just as Trump has harnessed the worst aspects of the American character, I think we need to harness the best aspect of the American character by speaking to it. Um, the, the, the voters were the, were the grown-ups in the room this last Tuesday. Um, they showed they can behave in ways uh, that are, you know, look, you win some and you lose some. There are people that we wish had won and others that we wish hadn't won. But they cleaved uh, to a moderation of character this week. And that's where the new politics and a path future will come from. 
So let me ask you about the Republicans. This is a talk Crystal and I have had nonstop since the <laughs> election. We, everybody knows yeah. now it's probably a meme online, yeah. like the Trump versus DeSantis uh, debate. So mm-hmm. look, there were, here are the exceptions to what happened in the election. You have pockets of New York, but that was more because of redistricting than anything else. And maybe arguably like the tough on crime stuff because of what was going on in New York City. Uh, you have Ohio with J.D. Vance versus Tim Ryan, even though Tim Ryan overperformed even Biden um, in Ohio. And then, of course, you have Florida. Florida is the real, um, you know, anomaly compared to everything else that happened. And so the poll showed the race with between DeSantis and Charlie Chris was pretty close going into Election Day. It was supposed to be like a maybe a two, three point win by DeSantis. And it turned into a blowout. DeSantis nearly got 60 percent. Yeah. Yeah. So. So he's riding high at the exact same time that all of the Trump candidates shit the bed. I mean, just massively. So now you have this move from the media to like sort of pump up DeSantis. And as Crystal points out all the time, like the Republican elites and the commentariat are pumping up DeSantis. I happen to think it's also real uh, among the base that there's sort of a grassroots now on the right that sort of like DeSantis more than Trump. They don't like how Trump's taking pot shots at their guy who's like the heir apparent and the next star and all that stuff. So let me ask you this. Number one... Is it still Donald Trump's party? Number two, does it even matter if it is or isn't? Because in DeSantis, we kind of have like a Trump-like character. Mm. I think DeSantis is almost more dangerous uh, to those of us who believe in uh, another direction for the United States. Uh, the Yonkin, uh, the Kerry Lake, um, not so much a Kerry Lake on this one, stay with more the Yonkin image. The Republican, who is basically a MAGA-type but more palatable to the wine drinking crowd, not just the beer drinking crowd. Um, I don't think we should spend too much time um, figuring all that out because the solution and the response to that should be the same no matter who they put up. It doesn't seem to me like it's Trump's crowd, uh, Trump's party today uh, the way it was. But then, number one, I'm not a Republican. And number two, I don't care what they do. I care what direction this country goes in, and I don't think we really have the luxury of spending too much time figuring out what they do when we have so much to do in order to create a compelling alternative to that for the American people. That's what the American people have not been offered. They have not been offered a compelling alternative to the corporatist direction of this country. The tyrants aren't to the left or to the right. The tyrants are up there. The tyrants are the corporate matrix, whether it's the insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies, big ag, big food, big oil, gun manufacturers, uh, defense contractors, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. And by the way, and I think, Crystal, you and I had this conversation the other day. I think conservatives are starting to figure that out as well. And even someone like a DeSantis, DeSantis is taken off. It's so interesting. The DeSantis's and the, um, and the Tucker Carlson's, they're coming out with some anti-corporatist messaging. Won't this be awful if they win on an anti-corporatist message? <laughs> so, so we need to just really, magnify and intensify and articulate and effectuate such a powerful, overwhelming, they don't make the mistake of talking about us so much. <laughs> we shouldn't make the mistake of talking. We, we get almost too fascinated by the fire. I think we need to build a fire of our own and shout it loud and proud to the American people and show them that there is a, an alternative because whether it's DeSantis or Trump, 
They do not represent a path for the country that helps you. They will throw you crumbs. It's just like the 2017 tax cut. They were very smart. So the $2,002 trillion tax cut in 2017, 83 cents of every dollar went to the richest corporations and individuals, but the rest of it went to middle class. That middle class tax cut should have been made by the Democrats. So they're very smart. Every time they give a huge gift to corporations and billionaires, they throw some crumbs to hungry people. Those hungry people should be feasted by the Democrats, feasted by the left. And as you, as you said, you know, Biden took some incremental approaches, but an incremental approach is not ultimately going to be enough to, um, to, to, to really be able to win against the kind of force that they will be throwing at us in 2024. Well, and that's the other question is like, you know, we all have our analysis of what happened and why it happened. And it's multifaceted. It's certainly Roe versus Wade. It's GOP extremism. It's some genuinely positive, albeit incremental step, steps forward in terms of economics, in terms of pro-labor. Um, it's the student loan debt relief, which really helped to energize young voters and get them to the polls. But when uh, Kyle and I turned on MSNBC for like 20 minutes on election night, and there the message was just incredibly one-dimensional. It was abortion. That's the only thing that you're, you know, that was the thing that won. Everybody who said it was anything else was silly and ridiculous. And I'm worried that that's effectively what the Democratic Party is going to take from this election. It's like, we don't really have to do anything else except point out how ridiculous the Republicans are and say abortion, abortion, abortion. Um, you know, Biden's press conference that he gave, he said some things that I liked, you know, some of what he had to say about why they did well uh, had echoes of, of what our analysis has been. But he also indicated basically when they were like, well, what would you do different? He's like, nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing different. Yeah, he's not going to do anything and different. That's that's not encouraging. That will be, it is very unwise of the Democrats to think that given the results the other night, they're on track for beating the Republicans in 2024. That would be a very unwise message to take from this. And I see trying to figure out what MSNBC is doing. I mean, don't why? I mean, why? <laughs> you know, uh, that's why you're important. That's why the two of you are important. That's why all independent media is important. Right. And we but just, they do we, unfortunately have a lot of sway in the party and not just with elites. I mean, we saw what happened in the 2020 primary where when they decided Joe Biden's the guy, that's it. That was, it was over. I mean, there was a huge shift among the electorate the likes of which you've like never seen before. So that's why what they say in their messaging and their theory of what happened, I think is ultimately consequential. The abolitionists had no reason to believe that they could eradicate slavery. And the women's suffragists had no reason to believe that they could establish a constitutional amendment to give women the right to vote. And civil rights workers had no reason to believe that they could desegregate the South. If you allow yourself to think too much about all the reasons why you can't possibly be successful, then you won't be. Um, you simply take a stand because it is the right thing to do. And you say the things, as I know all of us are trying to do, that we feel need to be said. 
And I think that this election the other night proved that Americans actually in the final analysis are not necessarily taken in by the noise. They are not necessarily taken in by the propaganda, that they do have a capacity to see beyond it. And, you know, you just, I, I think there's something about serving the ages. You know, I guess because I'm a writer, you know, we live, if you're on social media or any media, you get this instant feedback. Oh no, they don't, they don't agree with me. Oh no, they don't like me. Oh no, the polls say we could never get there. I come from a place where you're sitting in your own room reading, writing a book. And the only feedback is, does this sound right? Uh, you, you're not, you, you can't live from a place of, was everybody going to agree with me? That's the corruption. That's the sales mentality right there. Um, there was a, a, a writer named Arnold Patton who said something that really has guided my career. He said, if you genuinely have something that you need to say, there's someone out there who genuinely needs to hear it. If you social change doesn't happen on a horizontal basis, it happens on a vertical basis. If you're just out to get more people to agree with you, you're always tempted to water down your message. If you go vertical, you're saying it doesn't matter how many agree with me. What matters is the conviction with which I believe it and I say it. And that becomes a force multiplier because there are a lot of people who want to believe it, but they're just waiting for someone to make a stand so strongly for it, as the two of you do, that they feel, well, there's hope that we can build this field. The dark side of that is Donald Trump. He said outrageous things that supposedly no one would ever go. And by the way, I'm old enough to remember a time when there was no way Ronald Reagan would ever be president because he was too conservative. Just say what you believe. Say what you believe. It's like you've said to me, Kyle. Kyle, you've said to me more than once, don't look. I've heard you say more than once. Don't look at the responses people have to you when you tweet something or put it on social media. And you talked about how much happier your life has been since you stopped doing that. We've all, we're all, you know, enough with the people pleasing. So yeah. I've had about the people pleasing. No, what I'm worried yeah. about is that the Biden administration is going to think that they don't have to do anything different. Well, it's going to think so, that all they have to do is say abortion over and over again. And he's going yeah. to cruise to reelection. I mean, well, if he I'm does, he will lose in 20. Well. well, that's my fear as well. But let me lay out some some uh, alternate scenarios for everybody. So in a world that is good and just and happy and fair and peaceful and all those, these lovely things, uh, we would look at here's what happens from here on out. You know, the Democrats hold the Senate. Let's say for argument's sake, they, the Democrats hold the house, even though that's not likely, let's give them a one vote advantage in the house. Right. Um, we would see a Biden administration, uh, get through somehow make an exception to the filibuster, get there. I'm trying to be realistic here, right? One exception to the filibuster Roe versus Wade codify Roe versus Wade. Boom. That's, you know, that would be a good thing. Let's say you also get another reconciliation package that has, the extended child tax credit in it, maybe paid family leave in it. Um, he signs a couple uh, more executive orders that you know have very high approval rating and, and works out. And then in 2024, um, you know, the election comes uh, and it goes swimmingly for him, swimmingly for Democrats. And we see a similar results like we saw tonight. They hold the White House, et cetera, et cetera. That's an optimistic scenario, right? Here's a, another scenario which might happen. Um, Republicans get the House. Uh, let's say, for argument's sake, dead tie in the Senate. Uh, Biden is a lame duck, and Biden does Dicky McGeezax for the next 
however many years, right? Two years. Um, and then we're looking at, honestly, uh, a, a point you made so eloquently in your article that we just like temporarily staved off the neo-fascist takeover of the system. Um, how do we prevent the latter scenario from happening? Because, because that is very possible. People forget there was a time Biden had a 33% approval rating. He was doing nothing. And I was losing my mind, pulling my hair out every day on my show saying, for the love of God, do something. Now, thankfully he did, but is that going to happen again? I don't know. I could easily see him going back down to 33%. The question isn't even just whether Biden could win in 2024. The real question is what happens to America even if he does? They, they're still the, the neoliberal status quo of which he is part. He is at times the higher end, better aspect of the neoliberal establishment still represents a, 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 a humanity on a collision course with itself. It still represents, uh, the glorification of a war machine. It still represents compromise with, uh, with fossil fuel companies. It still represents a, a path of chaos and ultimate diminution of the, the possibilities of democracy in the rights of the American people. There's more than a horse race going on here. There's a contest. It's even beyond the contest for the soul of America. It's a contest for the survival of the species. So it's got to be more than how do we get Biden to win in 2024? The question has got to be, how do we make a U-turn here? Because this ship is headed towards the iceberg. The iceberg could be nuclear, uh, nuclear war. The iceberg could be a climate catastrophe. The iceberg could be bio, uh, biomedical horror. We're not even talking about some of the bigger issues because we stay, uh, we stay too focused sometimes on the horse race. This ship has got to make a U-turn. The status quo, which he does represent, even at his best, will not disrupt itself. We have to disrupt the whole corrupt neoliberal establishment. And I think I believe in my heart, and I think that's really what we're talking about here. Do you think the American people would go with us on that? I think the American people, when they see what's really at stake here and what's really happening, I, I believe in the American people. I believe the American people would say yes. Um, I want you to weigh in on another. This one's less of a debate and more of an ongoing conversation Kyle and I have been having about whether um, these presidents, whether what, you know, leads them in the directions that they go in is more their individual characteristics and ideologies and particular like personality quirks, or is it more that they're a reflection of the era in which they live? So, you know, you have um, the new deal era, then you have uh, Carter is kind of this transitional figure. And then uh, between the new deal era and the, the Reagan neoliberal era, and you have Reagan come in, then you have Clinton, come in and consolidate the neoliberal era by throwing the Democratic Party all in with it. And what's been strange to see is that Biden, for most of his career, I mean, he really is the type that just kind of centers himself wherever the middle of the party is, wherever he thinks the middle of the country is. So in some ways, he's become the reason I think he's done more than I expected him to in office, um, though, of course, still not enough, is because where the American public is has shifted. And so he's less, you know, really acting on what he thinks the vision should be and what his ideology is, which hasn't been reflected in his whole 40 years of government, and more on the way that the American public has moved and the way that we're shifting into a new era. I love reading biographies for the 
very reason that you're putting out there to see where people go. One of the things that fascinates me is the life of FDR. FDR was tall, rich, handsome, tall, dark, and handsome, rich. He was a Roosevelt. His uncle was president. He had everything. And there was no way, given that, that it would be almost even conceivable that he could expand to the level of compassion and powerful compassion that it took him, took for him to be the leader, uh, that he was during the Great Depression. What, what made the difference was that he was struck down by polio. And when he was struck down by polio and he used to go down to the springs in Georgia, people who he would never have even noticed unless they were servants in his house just saw him as just another victim and they helped him to look at what his suffering did. And Eleanor Roosevelt wrote quite a, a lot about it, that it was his suffering, the years he went through trying just to walk across the room, knowing he would not be able to, that prepared him. What happens, you know, there's a lot of talk about, about Biden's empathy, but Biden's empathy has not expanded to a collective empathy. We all know that he's the empath in chief if you yourself had a tragedy in your family, but he hasn't shown a lot of empathy for people in Yemen. He hasn't shown a lot of empathy uh, for some of the broader economic concerns. Yes, and let's be real, guys. He's taking incremental approaches. He's alleviating some stress, but he is not as FDR did calling out the forces, as FDR called them, lust for power, forces of greed and lust for power that are making all that uh, all that pain inevitable. What happens, in, as I see it, is these people get locked into a system. And, you know, we live here. We live in Washington. Washington is not just a, a, um, a bubble. It's a walled-off city. There are too many people. There are people who serve in our government, most of them, in fact, probably all of them, they've never been hungry. And perhaps they have not taken the time to imagine what it feels like. And there is genuine hunger in America. So they're in, they're on an elite cocktail circuit. You know, that they, you just walk into that, into that. You know, when I was a child, my father was, was brought up, he was poor. He was seriously poor. Uh, and he would never, I remember we would go somewhere and he would look at, there would be a janitor or someone working late night in a building. And he'd say to us, see that man or see that, that woman? And we'd say, yeah. And he'd say, his life is very hard. Or her life is very hard. We, we buffer ourselves from suffering. We, we are obsessed in this culture with buffering ourselves from suffering and it desensitizes us. We buffer it if at all possible. We try to protect our children from even appropriate recognition of the pain of others. It has desensitized us and the political elite. It's a, it's a business. It's a big business. The political media industrial complex. I saw it. I ran for president. I was in the belly of that beast. It's a multi-billion dollar business and it is walled off from human empathy. And so people whose, whose careers are entrenched within that, they, um, they, they, there, there are too many generations in their own experience or in their family's experience. I don't know. Away. There's a woman I met who worked in the Obama administration. She is a black woman, which I think is interesting too. And she had worked in some Midwest state. She'd worked on his campaign. And then she was brought in to work for the administration. 
She was in the Oval Office, she told me, at a meeting one day, and they were talking about an economic issue. And one of the men in the meeting said, well, I mean, what will that do for people? I mean, that would only be $300 a month. It's not that big a deal anyway. And she said, she stood up and said, I'm out of here. You are not who I thought you were. That people are sitting in the Oval Office and in a Democratic administration saying, well, you know, what would $300 a month mean for people anyway? You get sucked into something. It's like my father used to always say, don't let the bastards get to you. To your point on, uh, on empathy, uh, and Crystal and I were talking about this earlier, you know, you got the sense that there was some element of that in the Fetterman race, too. Yeah, Fetterman, yes, Fetterman I agree. And he struggled in the debate, but one line that stuck with me that I mentioned to Crystal is when he kept repeatedly saying, he said it in the debate, and he said it, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere, that, yeah, look, I had a stroke. I've been knocked down, and I'm trying really hard to get back up. And for everybody out there that's trying to get back up, like, I got your back. And I think that's something that Brandon. Absolutely. And also, Crystal, I think I saw this on your other show. I think one of you said, um, people aren't all healthy in Pennsylvania. And when Oz started making fun of somebody for having physical problems, they felt derided. I think I heard you or Sagar said that, or maybe it was you, Carl. Um, Yeah. We were, I think, Sagar and I sort of bouncing off each other on that point because, you know, it was, first of all, he came across as that was courageous to do that debate. I mean, to make right. yourself yeah. that vulnerable mm -hmm. on the national stage. There were other Democrats, Katie Cobbs in Arizona, not because she has any, you know, physical ailments, but be just because she thought Carrie Lake was a more formidable debater. She just refused to debate. And here you have Fetterman who knows he's in the midst of recovery, yep. knows this is going to be very rough, excruciating, and still subjecting himself to that process. And then across from you is a doctor who is supposed to be the like embodiment of care and empathy. And he's just like basically acting like a dick. You know, I don't think that that, um, I don't think that's that well with people. I really don't. You know, I knew him a bit years ago and, uh, the person that he is in this campaign or has been in this campaign was not the person that, uh, he seemed to me to be. Um, Clearly, someone convinced him that going full on MAGA and uh, Trump-esque was the way to go. Um, let me ask you a question, though, from a political perspective. Do you think it was wise of him to do that debate? Would you have counseled him to do that debate? Now, in retrospect, I mean, I you go, yeah. In <laughs> retrospect, you say, yeah. I don't know. I think he won despite it. I think he won despite it. Because I agree with what you said. It was very vulnerable of him. Yeah. But I know from having been on a debate stage, um, it's kind of like kids in school. The fact that a child can test well may or may not mean be the best indicator of, of what they can contribute to society or even what they're learning. So yeah, they, they opted, they opted for transparency. So it was kind of, in my opinion, I actually think it was a principled stand on their part. I think, you know, they could have calculated like, oh, it'd be better off if we don't do it. But I think Fetterman, may have, you know, said, look, I'm the boss and I opt for maximum transparency. So it's very, it is very admirable for a number of reasons that he did it. But yeah, not going to lie. In the wake of that debate, Crystal like, and I were oh. like, 
Hey, dog, you probably shouldn't have done done the debate. Yeah, like, it was the right thing to do. I applaud you for doing yeah, it. But, but I don't know that that was smart. Yeah. I mean, listen, he was able to win and outperformed Biden in almost every county in the entire state. I think I saw one county where he did not outperform Biden. And he did, um, he had his largest outperformance, not in like the, you know, white liberal suburbs or wherever, where people thought women would be like just voting on abortion, but actually in the rural parts of the state where he gained the most ground, which I thought was interesting as well. So, I mean, it's impossible to know how much the stroke hurt him. Did it hurt? What happened with the debate? In the end, I think it was uh, both a campaign calculation and a principled move to opt on the side of transparency, subject himself to interviews. He actually did more interviews um, with mainstream media reporters and editorial boards than Oz did Mm -hmm. um, to do that debate. And I think it really set an important example for democracy. I also think that the political science literature says that debates don't really matter that much, even at the presidential level. And I think it may be part of uh, what you're sort of saying there, Marianne, is like the American people intuit what you're doing in this debate doesn't really have anything to do with the job that you're applying for and the you know performance you would give as a United States senator, as a member of Congress or whatever. So they sort of see through the theater of that ultimately. I think that that's one of quite a few races where the American people were more intelligent. Uh, like you were saying earlier, maybe we didn't give enough credit to people that they saw through some of the glitz that they, that they saw through, not only in, in the Fetterman race, but in other races as well. It's the fascinating moment of inflection. Pardon? I'm going to, I'm going to pat myself on the back because I was more agnostic than everybody around me. I mean, I did, I wasn't as bold as Michael Moore to be like, yeah, I was going to say Michael Moore. Wave, but I was, but I said, look, I'm agnostic because there were so many things that were so many factors that pre, we couldn't have imagined would be in play, like Roe versus Wade being overturned, like the student loan debt reduction, like the party, 53% of Republicans not believing in the results of the election and being flirting with overthrowing elections. So those were complicating factors. I wasn't, I was more agnostic on where the voters would go. My fear had to do with men with AK-47s at vote, at right. voting, you know, and intimidating election officials and all that kind of stuff that I was reading articles about and seeing on television. That's where I got too taken in by fear. Yeah. Well, how wonderful and, and that we way, were you're, wrong. You're right. You're no, you're right in a sense too, because I saw a number of articles Republicans are filing three times more lawsuits than they did in even 2020. There were a lot of reports in certain places. There were these poll watchers that were, you know, basically people who were like super pro-Trump MAGA types who like harass people at the polling places. So that's real. But yeah, it, it didn't get it didn't raise the level. Thankfully, it didn't raise the level of literal violence and AK-47s, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I was. Go ahead, Marianne. Well, I was reading an article about these mothers groups that were forming. Uh, we'll all take our kids and then we'll all, we'll take care of the kids for moms who are scared to take their children into the, into the actual polling place. We'll watch your children while you do that. That was happening. Wow. Facebook groups wow. that were forming. Jeez. Um, you know, I think as we process the results of this election, too, which were surprisingly, you know, decent for Democrats, likely to hold on to the Senate, they held on a possibility of even holding on to the House. 
I think it's important to hold two thoughts in your head. Number one, it is the best performance for a party in power in modern history. If you take out the George W. Bush 2002 uh, election result, which I think we, you know, that one has some pretty unique circumstances on it. On the other hand, you also have to hold the thought in your head of kind of what you were both talking about earlier with FDR, which is that, yeah, in the modern history, we take for granted that, you know, you bounce back and forth and that if you're in power, you're bound to get a shellacking in the next midterm. But it hasn't always been that way. Right. And that in the final count, and this is kind of this is unusual and it's kind of remarkable. Democrats are likely to lose the popular vote in terms of the House vote. So because of, you know, structural factors and primarily gerrymandering, usually Democrats have to win by a few percentage points and Republicans have this kind of structural advantage. It actually worked out. Republicans had a bit of a structural disadvantage this time and Democrats are almost certain to lose the popular vote. So I think it's important not to, you know, pat them on the back too much when you're still talking about probably losing a majority of the population in the end count. Not only that, two years is a long time in American in American politics. Just think how different 2022 is from 2020. So we shouldn't make too much of an assumption about what's going to be true in 2024 based on how we analyze 2022. A lot's going to happen in the next two years. And I think a, a, a lot of what happens right now is what's going to determine what happens in 2024. And that's why I think it's so important that we be loud and proud with the progressive message that we insist, because as you've both said, they're going to minimize the contribution of the, of the progressive base in all this. They're going to, uh, to invisibilize the contribution of youth in all this because they don't want to take it as a sign that they have to do more for young people. So we have to keep that voice loud. That's what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is not a conversation of lies, but also not a conversation of half-truths. The only way to be big lies is through big truth. The Democrats sell the truth, but not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I'm excited by a, a the story of America. I'm excited about the principles on which we purport to stand. I'm excited about the possibility of reckoning with all the places where we are to we say we are in order to heal this country and move forward. So um, I hope that we will, in all ways possible, magnify a new conversation. Uh, it's not the conversation on MSNBC. It's certainly not the conversation Trump or even DeSantis is having. It's certainly a conversation that you guys are having. Um, and I think that um, the more we stand on what, how we see it, not how the electorate saw it, not how any of them saw it, but how we see it, the more we will attract uh, the faith and the conviction of our own demographic, uh, our own audience, our own fellow citizens to go, yeah, why don't we just disrupt the whole thing? Why don't we disrupt the corrupt? Why don't we end the aberrational chapter of neoliberal politics in the United States? Why don't we reclaim the moral vision in the Declaration of Independence and really get out of this death spiral that the Republicans definitely uh, represent and that Democrats still remain too close to even when they individual on individual issues get it right? That's how I see it. Well, Marianne, we love you. It is always a privilege um, to get to benefit from your wisdom, especially in a big, um, what I think could really be a potentially big pivot point uh, in where the country is heading. So thank you so much as always for, for taking. Well, time. thank you. And I agree with you. It's a huge pivot point. This is an inflection moment. This is, we have a window of opportunity right here. And uh, I just think we should uh, uh, rush, 
right through it and not concern ourselves with how many people agree with us right now. Mm. And uh, well as I say to you all the time, at the risk of sounding pandering, uh, I know in my life and in the life of many people I know, hearing both of you uh, is a great um, fortifier for me. Uh, not only when I learn things from you that I didn't know or that I hadn't been thinking, but also when you say things that I've already been thinking, I find myself having more faith because, you know, they said it too. And uh, so you keep doing what you do. Thank you so much. That's the definition of solidarity right there. Mm -hmm. yeah, That's right. You, it is. God bless you both. Thank you. All right, guys. So that was Marianne Williamson. Um, yeah. Lovely conversation. Always great to talk to her because she takes it to like the next level, mm -hmm. you know, especially a couple of days after the election, after we've already done all kinds of like granular, this demographic turned out and whatever. She's very good at setting the table of like the meta, the meta, the higher level thoughts about what this all means and where we are in their national and world history. So if she runs for president, um, conventional wisdom, understandably so, is like, the path is narrower now. Biden had a 45% approval rating in the exit poll, which is on the higher end for him. Mm -hmm. uh, that actually surpasses Clinton. That surpasses uh, Trump at, at this time in office. Yep. Um, so, it, you know, Democrats performing well is like, hey, well, what would you change? Like Biden literally said the other day, like, I'm not going to change anything. I do think people are slightly misinterpreting that. What he meant by that is we're going to stay the course. He was like, you know. Um, with prescription drugs. He's like, as soon as people learn what we did, that's why they vote for us. So we lower prescription drug costs for seniors. That's why they voted. Like that was the argument he was making. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to do nothing. He said that before he was in office, that nothing will fundamentally change argument, yeah, right? Yeah, but I don't want him to stay the course. I want him to do more. Well, so that's my next point that I was going to make is um, the conventional wisdom could be wrong, at least in the sense that the left argument was vindicated here. Um, and the lesson the mainstream Democrats might take away is... Republicans are super extremists, keep propping up the super extremist ones and keep talking about abortion. And that's how we win. And if that's all they take away from this, they are just fundamentally objectively wrong. Because a huge part of the picture was the 350,000 jobs that are being onsourced, was the student loan debt reduction. And if they don't keep those pieces in mind and keep going down that path, then there is a lane open for somebody like Marianne Williamson. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think it's just worth having a lot of humility about pr political predictions at this point. I mean, the thing that I really fundamentally got wrong about this election going in was a sort of lack of faith in the American people. I mean, I think part of why, because when you looked at the fundamentals, like I didn't trust the polls. I was like, all right, you look at the fundamentals and you're like, the economic, people say 70% say we're on the wrong track. The economic numbers are bad. Biden's approval rating is low. The party in power normally loses seats. So it's like, if anything, I think these polls are probably too favorable towards Democrats. But I think what I didn't account for is the fact that there would be a genuine appreciation for, you know, you do good stuff for people and they will reward you. And even though it wasn't like, you know, the sort of transformational change that we would like to see and that people deserve, there was still a level of appreciation for what had been done. And I also think there was a more sophisticated understanding of the inflation conversation where it was like, yeah, we've just been through COVID and the world got turned upside down and there's a war going on. And, you know, there's a lot going on that is not just directly laid at the feet of Joe Biden. And, hey, by the way, these Republicans are saying inflation, inflation, but they don't actually have a plan. So if I take that learning forward of, you know, there was actually like a fairly sophisticated understanding of what's going right and what's going wrong in the country. 
and there was a you know large swath of voters that acted on that, then to me, that actually does strengthen the case that, yeah, there is an opening for someone to go even more in that direction to really give the American people what they deserve, not just like the thimble of water that they've been given in the desert from the Biden administration. I think you're a little too hard on yourself for your prediction because it wasn't, I wasn't nearly so, as wrong as like every mainstream. Well, my actual... Like when I came down to it and I picked the Senate races, it looks like I'm only going to be wrong in one, which is I did feel like, oh, fuck, I think Oz is going to win. But um, my feeling going into Election Day, the way I felt in my stomach, I was like, oh, here's, I think this could be bad. <laughs> here's here's where you messed up from one commentator to another. Yeah. Never give specific race predictions. Nah, I don't agree with that. No, well, look, I don't for, agree with that. Oh, wait, hold I like for me, people to be able to, you know, to be able to say, like, hold you accountable and be like, see, you were wrong about yeah, this one. Like, you were right about that one. But that's where we genuinely don't know race by race. I'm okay yeah. with a, a presidential prediction because it's such a big event. And it's the one big one. You know what I mean? So that's fine. But every other one is just prognosticating needs to have certain limits. So anyway, I think you're a little too hard on yourself on that front. You were much more correct than a lot of the other mainstream pundits. I actually think Nate Silver is sort of unfairly getting some shit because they're lumping him in with real clear politics. Real clear politics had Republicans winning 54 seats in the Senate. Yeah. They were just fucking wrong. Well, Nate you Silver know, was not saying that. And he, even real clear politics, I wouldn't give them that hard of a time because all they do and all they've ever done is just, here are all the polls and now we're going to average them. So if they just were like, this is what we do and we're not making a judgment call, but they went kind of hard on like, you know, Trafalgar's push, good. The right wing pollsters right. are good. They were like, you know, going, going kind of hard online and in like television appearances and whatever, making fun of people who were saying, you know, some of these polls look kind of like they're garbage. Um, I think it's the same reason why Nate Silver is being given a hard time right now is because uh, his predictions didn't end up being that far no, off. No, they weren't I mean, that off at all. He only he had, had it, 59 for 59 percent for Republicans. Yeah, in the which is basically still like a jump ball. I mean, that's still yeah. very much like Democrats are really in the game. Yes. His, House predictions are not going to end up being that far. I mean, Republicans probably are going to take control of the House. But Barely. I think it's because he engaged in a lot of online debating about his methodology and also arguing that those uh, partisan polls were, you know, worthy of being included in his average and that they weren't ultimately garbage. So I think that's why people are going after him is because he also went kind of hard, like defending some of those polls that ended up being wildly off. I mean, Trafalgar had Patty Murray like on the rocks in Washington and RCP real clear politics had her as a, her race is like a toss up yeah, and she ended up winning by, by 14 points. Like, okay, this is, this is silly. So I think that's why he's getting a hard time. Yeah. And I'm going to pat myself on the back. I was more right than most people as well, because if you go back and watch my prediction video, I'm very agnostic, very agnostic. And when I forced myself to make a hard prediction, I said, Republicans win. Maybe it's 51 52 in the Senate. Yeah. Uh, and I said in the House, they're going to win, but it's going to be nowhere near the the uh, red wave of 2010, where they picked up 63 seats. I said, maybe they'll get like 20 or so seats. Yeah. And it looks like I'm still off, but I'm off by one seat in the Senate, maybe. Yeah. And then in the House, I'm going to be off by maybe 10 yeah. And, and Republicans doing worse on that. Yeah. So maybe I mean, they ultimately, get six, 10, I'm, I'm not actually, that's about where I'll be off as well. Yeah, but like you maybe were more, once, but I I was definitely feeling more negative. You were more you were you were more bearish. You were more worried about a red wave than I was. Yeah. For sure. I, I thought it was in the realm of possibility that you do end up with like, you know, Lee Zeldin winning in New York and 
like Maggie has well, been losing race, in, race was real. in New Hampshire. Uh, and Zeldin, actually, I mean, New York is one of the places Democrats really did underperform. Right. Yeah, it was a real race. I think it's because of a couple things. I mean, I do think that was like the only place in the country where the like tough on crime messaging stuff uh, actually worked. And not even in New York City, but in the suburbs that haven't even been impacted by the rise in crime. But you often often see this. It's like the fear of like, oh, my God, what's happening in the city is going to come to my neighborhood. So I think that was more effective in New York than anywhere else. But I actually think the big reason was that abortion did not play as big a role in the vote in New York as it did in other places, because you had a sense there that um, you had democratic control of the state. So there was less at stake in terms of like you were less concerned that your rights were going to be hinging on this particular election. And you saw this in some of the registration data. I think you might have covered it. I know we covered it. After Roe versus Wade was overturned, you had the surge of women registering to vote, but it was really highly correlated to how directly like abortion was actually on the ballot in that state. So in a state like Michigan, where you literally had a ballot initiative related to abortion, huge numbers of women and Democratic women in particular registering to vote in New York, there was no effect. Here's another reason why I was less um, worried than you. I feel like people forgot about those special elections very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And they did it for no reason they did it. You know, like there were five special elections and Democrats way overperformed the polls in yeah. those elections. And then everybody act like they didn't happen. I was yeah. like, no, wait, this is a data point. That's actually well, the really theory, important. The theory was that the that was right after Roe is overturned. And so it's at its most raw then. And that that impact had waned over time. That was the theory of why people, but, including myself, were discounting those results. But even if it waned, the idea that it wanes back to zero, I think, was a preposterous thing. And that seemed to be the conventional wisdom, because that is totally gone. And it's like, even if you reel it in 40%, there's still a, a hunger out there of like, this, these guys went way too far. There was a New Yorker article. I would love to, for these same Republican strategists to get interviewed now. Um, but there was a New Yorker article interviewing Republican strategists who were predicting huge red wave, like tsunami, like the kind of thing where Patty Murray genuinely is like in danger in Washington and whatever. And that was their theory is that not only had the uh, emotions and like the rawness of that Supreme Court decision, not only had that faded, but there was also actually a respondent bias in the polling right after that was overturned, where it was like, it's overturned and every liberal woman in the country wants to answer the phone and like, you know, tell the pollsters what they think about it. And so you get these big margins for Fetterman, you get these big margins for other candidates. And so it wasn't just that the emotion faded, it's that the polls at that time were not reflecting, you know, the reality of how people felt. But like you said, Coke. then you, when you see the special elections results where people are actually voting and not only are they not underperforming the polls or overperforming the polls, that should have been an indication that those arguments didn't ultimately make a lot of yeah, sense. Was, but like I said, I would love to hear from those same strategists now. I wouldn't. Happens. It was massive cope. They were twisting themselves into intellectual pretzels to try to no, talk I think themselves they believed into it. believing it. I think they, well, then they're I fucking think they believed it because the right is amazing at dismissing everything that doesn't fit no, their narrative. They me, are. Let me stand up for uh because I think given the fact that you've had multiple elections that overestimated Democrats, and then you had um, economic fundamentals and Biden's approval rating that would indicate it was going to be a bad election for Democrats, I think it's understandable that you look at that, um, and I'm partly defending myself here too, that you look at that data and are like, 
yeah, things could go poorly for Democrats here. I mean, just when you have those economic numbers, when you have a low presidential proofing, when you have the party in power and it's their first midterms, like we've had time after time after time, every time in modern history, except this election and the George W. Bush 2002 one, that's precisely what is ultimately unfolded. So here's why that's cherry picked. What's the biggest economic indicator that people always talk about, except for this election? The unemployment rate. Mm. That's low. Here's another fact for you. The working class voted for Democrats more than any other income group exit poll show. 52% of households with incomes under 50K supported Democrats per exit polls. The bottom 50% of earners have seen the biggest increase in real income since 2021, plus 10.5%. Now, inflation is about 8%. So inflation's high, but their wages have gone up more than inflation, right? So again, my point, I think they cherry pick and this is what they do. Like it's like, oh yeah, these indicators make arguments. So we're going to make this argument. But obviously when push came to shove, what was the most important? What were the most important factors on that day? Again, number one, GOP extremism. Fifty-three percent of the candidates denying the last election and like flirting with maybe we'll just throw out democracy completely. That hurt them. Republican authoritarianism, overturning Roe versus Wade. I, I file under that because that's something that's deeply unpopular. Every single poll showed that people did not like that. Student loan debt reduction turned out young people. Three hundred fifty thousand jobs being brought back into the country. That's why the Democrats overperformed in the industrial Midwest. There were plenty of data points to make for that side of the argument. Now, I, I tried my best to be as objective as possible, which is why I did think, hey, look, inflation is bad. Crime did see an uptick and they're hammering away on that nonstop. So yeah. it was possible that you would get, you know, yeah. Republicans doing better. But it seemed to me like, oh, other than Michael Moore, who was too rah-rah Democrat, right? Yeah. Like nobody else was bringing up those other factors. Like everybody just pretended like those weren't factors. And that was kind of annoying. But honestly, the, the wave of what everybody was saying did push me more towards agnosticism when probably if I wasn't listening to the noise, I would have thought maybe Democrats will do good. Well, when I was looking at the polls that were saying everyone overwhelmingly was saying like inflation and is my number one issue and also telling pollsters like the economy is bad and I feel like I'm doing worse and my budget is being stretched and those numbers were so overwhelming, you know, and I do like... I don't really buy the case that actually the economy is better than what the media has been portraying. I don't actually buy that. I think it's more that the other factors were significant enough. The extremism, abortion, student, the, the few things that the Biden administration did that um, it was sufficient to overcome the fact that, you know, the economy is not in great shape right now. I mean, you have a more majority of Americans who say we're in a recession right now. So um, I don't really buy the case that actually, you know, because unemployment is low, the economy is fine. But I do think that, you know, those other factors ended up being more significant to the ultimate result. Well, I mean, that, but that's, that's not really the argument I was making because yeah. unemployment is low, the economy is fine. The argument is, here are other mitigating factors, mm -hmm. which means they're at least trying to, and in some ways, actually improving the situation. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And obviously, voters seem to agree. So, yes, yeah. indeed. No, no doubt about it. All right, guys. We love you. Everybody go subscribe on Substack if you haven't yet. Uh, hook your boy and your girl up. Five bucks a month. You get the video of every single show, and you get it a day early. Everybody else could listen for free on any of the uh, podcast outlets. We love you guys. We'll talk to you soon.